Welcome to the Elements of Adventure podcast. On today's episode, I'll be interviewing John Carmen. John is an old friend of mine. He's a skilled outdoorsman, hunter, and an explorer who has been to places on this earth that no one else has ever been before. He's had a huge, huge overall impact on my life, and I'm really excited to have had the opportunity to sit down and share some memories with him and delve into his wisdom and perspective on life. He's going to share some thoughts on what hunting means to him and why he doesn't consider it to be a sport how caving is one of the final frontiers, and the logistics of repelling El Capitan and how he got back to the top faster than Alex Honnold. Thank you again for being here, and please stick around after the podcast for some ideas of how to support it. I appreciate your time, and I hope you get something out of this. Thanks again. Walk us through your experience. What have you done? And uh, kind of walk us through your, your path so far. Yeah, so um, Jonathan Carmen and just a few credentials to get out of the way. I'm an American mountain guide, single pitch instructor for rock climbing, along with that, a wilderness first responder. And then bulk of my time in certifications and training has been centered around cave rescue from the National Cave Rescue Association. And um, I also, on occasion, lead exploration trips into Mammoth Cave. And the big trip I've done the last couple of years was an expedition to repel and descend El Capitan and Yosemite National Park. That's awesome. Alongside the, yeah, alongside that, from kind of my, the origins of my time outdoors comes from long, long paddle trips. So I've paddled the whole Kentucky River and then also some of the other small rivers in Kentucky. Awesome. I want to get into that for sure. Um, Cause that's super, super cool experience. So, um, to give you a little bit of an introduction uh, to, to our listeners here, I met John at uh, Berea College. We were both uh, undergrads there. Uh, John, you were one of the first people I met, actually, I think, in general. Um, you were the first fellow Christian that I met. Um, that was a big deal. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we, we hit it off right away. Um, John and I were part of a, a friend group where um, I think everyone in the group would, would agree John was our, our leader. Um, he was definitely uh, inspirational to us. Um, you have this, this, and you probably know this about yourself, but you, you have this gravity to you, John, that I'm, I'm excited to explore today. You, every time I'm around you, there's this, there's this overwhelming sense of destiny and purpose. And I, I, I've always appreciated that. Um, you know, whenever we're going on trips, it, it feels like whatever we're doing, whatever we're involved in matters in a bigger sense than just what we're doing in that moment. And I think that's a gift and, and I'm excited. I hope we can kind of delve into that a little bit and get behind the mindset that drives that. Um, you know, this, this podcast is really about the ethos of adventure. What is adventure? How do you think about it? How do you live your life in an adventurous way? And then how do we make that accessible for people um, who maybe don't have that experience? I hope there are going to be people that listen to this podcast that have never gone on what they perceive as an adventure before. But what I think they would find and what I hope they find by listening to this is maybe they have and they just haven't realized it. And they can sort of build on that. So that's, that's sort of where we're coming from with, uh, with the podcast. So uh, our group, our group was daring, uh, <laughs> a little dirty, uh, maybe sometimes a little dumb. We did some, some really amazing, bold stuff. Um, and uh, I hope we can get into some of those memories and some of those experiences. I've already interviewed um, Drew Stevenson, um, and I have plans to interview Brian um, and, and some of the others from our, our group as well. Um, awesome. so, so yeah, it was, it was good. Um, I don't know yet what order I'm going to release these in, so that might be a little bit out of order, but um, 
but yeah, it's, there's going to be good content if it, if it hasn't already come out. Um, so to start things off in one sentence, how would you personally define the word adventure? When I think about adventure, I think about embarking on an endeavor where the outcome is unknown. Ooh, okay. I okay. think I think that the element of the unknown outcome is probably one of the big hmm. defining pieces for me. I mean, there's certainly a lot of other things we can say about adventure. Taking risks is often a part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of ideas about leadership and goals that we often talk about in these kind of conversations, but I think at its most basic level for an individual, maybe not a group, but an individual, I think that the element of an unknown outcome is what really makes something an adventure. So that's interesting because I've, I've been on numerous adventures with you. I've known you. I was thinking about this today. We've known each other for, for oh gosh, 18 years longer than that. Uh, no, not that long. Uh, not quite that long. Coming up on it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, a long we're time. I'm, yeah. I'm super yeah. good at, I'm super good at the maths. <laughs> if I, I studied communication for a reason, um, but we've known long each other for a long time. Um, long enough to have forgotten exactly <laughs> when. That's how long. Yes, absolutely. So um, we've known each other for a long time and, and I've been on numerous trips with you and every trip that I've been on with you is very organized, very planned. You do your due diligence. So I'm curious, how do you preserve that mindset of the unknown outcome in light of all of the effort that you put into planning and preparation. So yeah, that spirit of adventure intact and don't, how do you avoid planning it to death? That's hard. That's really, as a planner, that's really hard. And that's something that I found myself doing as I transitioned from individual trips, like for myself and my friends to, um, the camp and ministry setting and then getting the guide certification, that was something that I found to be difficult because I was over planning mm -hmm. and I was getting things to the point where I knew exactly what was going to happen. Never, everything was under control and, and it, it killed, it killed some of the fun for me. Mm -hmm. um, so something I've transitioned to in the last couple of years is, um, having a Z in mind and starting on a, but not, not filling in all the blanks. Um, Interesting. Trying to think of a good example of this. And I have to reach back a little bit to probably the first big adventure that I went on, which was a paddle of the whole Kentucky river with my dad and I, and it, we were green. I mean, I think I was 17, uh, maybe about to turn 18. I'd, you know, done a little bit of like paddle around the lake um, at summer camp kind of stuff. And I was like, Oh, canoeing's fun. We should, we should go canoeing. And I, I knew where the river started and I knew where the river ended. So it was kind of like, we hop on this thing. We're going to come out the other end. And we had a state map. Um, that kind of nice. showed us what towns we were going to go by. And, and we did it, ma'am. I think my dad bought a, a canoe at like Sam's club or something. We had a tent from Walmart. You know, we probably had yeah. all in all, we were probably like five or $600 in to do this trip. And we, got on the river and we went and it was and it was awesome and um it's something that I've reflected back on in recent years of like here was a trip where we hadn't we had enough information mm -hmm. um but we certainly could have dug in deeper and planned it to the point where um it, it wouldn't have been as much of an adventure that unknown element would have been removed so um even even adventure 
with an unknown outcome still has to have a goal. There still has to be a purpose behind it, but exactly how that's going to be accomplished or whether or not you're going to succeed. Mm. One of those things has to be unknown. So maybe you're taking on a challenge that's so great that you're like, I I don't know. (laughs) Like, I don't know if we're going to be able to, or something that is significant enough that you can't see all those pieces. Um, but to, to dig into the, the part where I was talking about, you know, over planning takes the fun out of it. Really what it's doing is it's taking the adventure out of it. It's taking yeah. the unknown aspect out of it. So you might have a great trip. You might have a great paddle, a great climb, but are you really adventuring if you know exactly what's going to happen down to the, you know, the T right. <laughs> is it really an adventure and your spirit will kind of tell you, right. If you walk right, away right. and be like, Oh, well, yeah, that's good. I'm glad. Right. I'm glad we got outside. That's a little <laughs> right. different than, you know, the exhilaration that comes from an adventure. That's really interesting. And as I sit here listening to you, kind of thinking back through my own experiences, I think that holds true for for a lot of of the things that I've done. And, you know, it's interesting. You talked about kind of the the level of preparation and gear for that Kentucky River trip, and something that has come up in I think every podcast that I've recorded so far has been like good gear makes a trip more comfortable and sometimes it can make you safer and sometimes it can make it so you can do bigger things. But some of the best trips are where you just go out and do it and you don't let the gear get in the way. And um, I think there's, there's definitely a lesson in that Um, you should be safe and you should know, you know, you should have enough equipment to be able to keep yourself alive and get out of a situation. But um, above that, it just kind of adds comfort. (laughs) Um, so, uh, interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that perspective. That's awesome. I I really appreciate that wisdom. Um, so you've got a a really big family of nine sisters. Uh, you're the only boy. Uh, how do you think that influenced your outlook on life adventure and masculinity growing up? That's a loaded question, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it certainly did. I think, uh, more importantly than the fact that I grew up in a really large family, I didn't have brothers. Um, was it just the fact that I was living in a house full of other people and falling a little bit more on the introvert side, you know, that meant that I, w- I wanted to get out of the house. Right. <laughs> um, and I was lucky. I lived in a place that allowed me as a young kid, a lot of freedom. Um, my parents rented an old farmhouse it was on a 150 acre farm. And then there's 10 of you. I mean, you can't keep track of everyone being a, being, being a helicopter parent is not an option when you have 10 kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so for as long as I can remember, there were fields to roam and trees to climb and hay bales to jump, forts to be built, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of independent time without adult supervision. And I think that's key. And not that I was neglected, but mm-hmm. far from mm-hmm. it. No, but by the time I was five years old, I was regularly having to decide for myself sort of what risks were worth it, what might get me hurt, what would have consequences negatively. So I was practicing independent thinking. I didn't even realize it, but I was. I was learning to kind of think for myself and make those risk evaluations, the risk reward evaluations. And that's one side of it. And another part is that my parents were were old school in terms of technology. So there wasn't a lot of TV in our house. Movies were a rare special thing. I didn't have a console, um, you know, a game console. In middle school, I started playing some video games with friends and stuff and some on the computer. But in reality, I did a lot of making my own fun mm-hmm. 
and now I'm really grateful for that experience. So yeah, I'm definitely growing up in a farm with a big family, um, created a lot of opportunity for me to be out adventuring, thinking for myself and learning, learning to enjoy making those sort of like risk ward reward assessments without even realizing that I was, that I was doing it. That's awesome. You know, having been to, to your parents' house several times, I'm grateful for that too. Cause I, I can definitely see that. I remember standing in your kitchen with, uh, with Brian and a couple other folks one night, there was a bad ice storm. We got kicked out of school and we were standing in the kitchen seeing who could take the most shots of hot sauce um, <laughs> before caving. And uh, you know, it was, so yeah, there's definitely a, a, a spirit of making your own adventure, making your own fun in that household. That's definitely valuable. Um, and I appreciate that too, as someone from outside of your family. Um, so what's your favorite outdoor activity? I was, I was wondering about this because you've, you've got several things you're into and I could venture a guess, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized I, I don't really know what your favorite activity is. If you, if you had to pick one, what would you say it is and why? Oh, that would be picking one would be impossible for me, but I think what I'll have to answer is what is my favorite outdoor activity right now okay Um, there's 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 honestly some internal conflict here because over the last couple years i've transitioned in the kinds of adventures i've been going on and i do really enjoy to enjoy a broad spectrum it's like hey somebody's doing something outside let's go you know (laughs) but Mm -hmm. um the thing that's captured my attention most over the last couple years has been hunting Mm -hmm. in its various forms for the most of the decade before that after college it would have certainly been caving Mm-hmm. There were a few years, I think, that I was going underground on like 50 or 60 days during the year. And and here's the thing. I mean, I, I still love the adventure of caving. Mm-hmm. And I've never stopped liking caving. And I feel a little, this is probably could be a, a whole different podcast, but I feel like a little bit of a traitor because I haven't been doing as much caving recently because mm-hmm. there's a limit to how much time we have in life right yeah um and caving is not the thing that is scratching the itch for me right now it's not the thing that i'm thinking about when i'm in the car or awake at night that thing right now is hunting mm-hmm. but because of how much caving has meant to me i've wrestled with that and i felt like a traitor and um but I, I feel like you really have to do the thing that's capturing your imagination right yeah. now yeah so right now that's been that's been hunting i don't know maybe it'll be caving again next year um mm-hmm. But right, yeah, right now it's, it's caving. Do you think, or sorry, or right hunting. now it's hunting. Do yeah, you yeah. think, do you think, that's interesting. I want to delve into that a little bit. Do you think that that, those feelings, does that come from the community that you were a part of and feeling like, you know, you're, you're no longer as much a part of that community or is it sort of like traitor to yourself where like that, where you kind of invest so much of your identity in that? I'm just kind of curious. That's a great question. I think it's probably more, traitor to my self and a little bit of like just maybe the sense of loss that comes in when you realize that life's not life doesn't have enough time to do everything yeah um but i think it's a little more like traitor to myself because you know caving was like the one of the first things i like really really sunk my teeth into and definitely Mm -hmm. became an expert in Mm-hmm. And like, just, I remember being on trips and just like, man, I just can't imagine never doing this or like, why would people quit doing this? Mm-hmm. Like, they just must be crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, 
this is amazing. I'm, I'm standing in a place no human ever has before, uh, which, which is, which is, and was amazing. And, um, mm. you know, I, I crave those opportunities still. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it's not the thing that's capturing the imagination. And maybe that's one of those to jump back to the beginning mm-hmm. here, you know, it reached a point where I kind of had an expectation for what the outcome was going to be. I kind of knew where it was headed, even though it's yeah. exploration and adventure, I kind of knew how it was going to go down. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe I just wanted to transition into something that had that unknown factor for me again. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know, but that's, that's uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of what's going on with that. Uh, so I'm, <laughs> I'm doing tons and tons of hunting right now and I'm loving, loving it. And I think there's a few, there's a few reasons for that. So, I mean, some of it is my, my, a lot of my caving buddies moved away. So yeah, it's a, sure. a, a team sport for sure. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a little more flexibility to schedule and work and everything else when you can get a rifle or a bow and, and head off into the woods. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and I definitely want to delve into uh, to that hunting a little bit. So I know from conversations with you and from following you on social media and things like that, you take a really um, sustainable view towards hunting in particular. Um, can you dive into that a little bit? So I know you eat pretty much every part of your harvest. Um, you, you look at it as a harvest. Um, kind of walk us through your mindset on hunting. Yeah. So like I said, this is the, the thing I've been into recently, so I can definitely talk for a long time about this we have as long as you need (laughs) all right yeah i think i went on my first hunting trip six or seven years ago it wasn't something i did growing up my dad's not a hunter we might have gone fishing a few times when i was a kid but we're talking about the kind of fishing where you poke holes in the fish's face and you throw them back in which is not not something i i like now um we could we could jump into the the catch and release aspect of what people call the sport but anyway uh another another time maybe the process for me is about getting my own protein from nature and that experience is something that I never even really considered as possible when I was a kid I probably had some stereotypes in my head thinking of hunting as a redneck thing to do Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but after college I had a friend invite me and I initially went for the heck of it i I think I was, you know, maybe it would be good to know how to butcher animal, you know, the world Mm -hmm. and zombies come, you know, maybe, (laughs) I don't know what was in my head, but it was like, oh, this will be a good experience. So I just, new skill. Yeah, new skill. And I remember being in the woods, uh, being bored out of my mind, (laughs) not having the right gear. I was moving around too much, making too much noise. And I liked the idea of getting something, but I think I was also apprehensive. I didn't know how it would make me feel if I did. And it was a few days trip and I didn't get anything, you know? Okay. But my friend invited me back next year. Same thing. (laughs) Didn't get anything. Um, But my third year, I got my own gun. It was ready before the season. And on opening morning, I shot a little five point buck. And I'll go ahead and say that I don't, I don't like watching things die. It's probably good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it, I think it's it's interesting to think about because that is that is a part of hunting and it is a part of the reality of life whether we like it or not and that is if you want to eat meat something has to die and that's true whether you do the killing or whether you hire a hitman from some corporate mm-hmm. processing plant 
to do that for you. Meat comes from the, the death of an animal. Even if you want to eat plants, like those have to die too. And we're part of a circle of life in the natural world. So while I don't like watching animals die, I do enjoy being an active participant in the natural world. I like to touch nature. I like to see animals in their habitat doing their thing. And I love not knowing what's going to happen when I head off into the woods. Mm. And I love that the excitement of seeing an animal in the first moment, you know, you're in the woods nothing's going on you're hopefully enjoying nature and not being bored and then an animal a deer or a turkey kind of walks into the scene and the anticipation that builds from that moment to the opportunity you're waiting for which is a good clean shot that'll cause a quick death damage as little meat as possible that those moments are insane okay. um but anyway but back to the question you know hunting for your Meat is a very sustain, sustainable way of getting your protein. Mm-hmm. Um, hunting is incredibly regulated. It's not like it was in the 1800s. There are a lot of really smart biologists that are working hard to make sure that we don't overhunt a species, that we hunt them at the right times so that they can do things like give birth and raise their young without interference from hunters in the woods. Actually, in Kentucky, they, they put out, the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife puts out every year kind of a brief, which is the summary of the regulations. And I think this year it was like 44 or 45 pages long. Wow. And that's, that's the summary, you know, wow. that's like the, here's yeah. the basics of what you need to know. Um, not fully delving into the laws and everything. It's just like, here are the basics, you know, 45 pages long. Um, and these regulations are good thing. You know, in America, we, we've really learned the hard way about managing wildlife. And we did that by killing almost all the Buffalo killing all the past your pigeons, almost killing all the turkeys, um, you know, reducing deer and elk populations to almost nothing. Mm-hmm. But we learned that if we want to have these animals in healthy populations, we need to regulate when hunting happens and how much hunting happens. We need bag limits and season dates and all of that so we can have healthy populations and still have an opportunity for hunters to interact with nature and extract a natural resource that's renewable. And I think that's kind of interesting because death in nature is, is rough. Um, mm-hmm. We don't think about that most of the time, but the, the animals that we are hunting, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we should hunt them out of the goodness of our heart for them or something like that. But nature's rough. And that's important to remember that, you know, there aren't nursing homes for deer that get old and sick. They, right. it, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a good end. Life and is so a struggle. <laughs> it is. And so you have on one hand, this resource that is renewable mm-hmm. and a resource that is perishable. So mm-hmm. it makes sense to me that we as humans would participate in that instead of just a system that is not sustainable, like the commercial meat industry. Interesting. So do you see hunting as a sport? I don't actually, I okay. don't really like the word for the word sport for hunting. To me, it, it makes, it's, I mean, obviously it, it's actually semantics, but um, it, it makes a light of it a little more. I feel like it makes light of it. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what I was digging into with uh, like, um, I'll say, I'll this is my term made up recreational angling, right? Where we go out and we poke a hole in a fish's face and we throw it back in the water 
and we hope it's all fine, even though people that do studies will tell you that probably at least 20 to 25% of those fish will just die um, as a result of, you know, the fight they had on the hook. And so we're just going to, you know, have this good experience in catching fish. Traumatize really them fun. and release them. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, like, and I'm saying that as somebody who fishes and then takes fish out and kills them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously the sort of ethics around here is a little bit biblical, like every man does what's right in his own eyes. But, but I want that to mean something or at least provide it. I want the death of that animal to mean something and at least providing some protein for me. Right. Not that I don't enjoy the whole experience, but um, yeah, I do for whatever reason, (laughs) I do kind of have a problem with uh, just straight recreational angling catch and release because it's not as harmless as people think that it is to the animals. Interesting. Okay. Anyway. All right. I know you have been um, pretty adventurous in what you have eaten. Um, I've seen some pretty, pretty interesting posts on uh, Instagram and Facebook. I've seen hearts and livers and uh, all kinds of stuff, stuff that you can't find in the grocery store most of the time. For sure. Depending on where you live, maybe. Um, (laughs) uh, So what has been the most, uh, we'll call it pleasant. What has been the most pleasant discovery that you've made trying new parts of an animal that you maybe didn't previously eat? Oh man. Well, being able to do my own butchering and processing, I've discovered that there are a lot of good adventurous experiences to have, to be had. Uh-huh. Our protein experience is pretty uniquely American and pretty unique to this time in history. I'll say too, you know, we basically stick to the beef, pork, chicken, sometimes Turkey or seafood. I mean, a hundred years ago, sorry my my history major coming out here the, <laughs> the average person wasn't eating chicken like we do now mm-hmm. they would have probably eaten more than four or five different kinds of animals as well so it's probably a mistake to think we picked those five animals because they're the tastiest or the best for us and i'm not I'm, i love bacon like like everybody else i'm not i'm not knocking that uh, but the point is that we eat them because they're easy to raise and produce quickly in a mass quantities not necessarily because they're the best so yeah there's a whole suite of other delicious forms of protein you can eat but we with the animals that we kill we do try to use as much as we can so you know making bone broth out of the the bones you can make some great tacos de lengua if you save the the tongues and that's definitely a good one and a pretty weird one um <laughs> I think the the best experience has probably been eating heart I and mean, goose okay. heart is particularly really good. There are a lot of other parts of animals that get wasted, but heart is a muscle like other meat. And it's a weird American thing that we throw hearts away, honestly. Huh. <laughs> like um, I actually know a couple, he's from India, she's from China. And she heard that me and my friend were hunting and she was like, what do you, what do you guys do with the hearts? Do you save them? It uh, turns out. So, you know, she's from China and she, grew up eating pig heart so uh, that is that is comfort food for her like that is the taste of home uh, is to stir fry up some heart uh, so anyway heart is great i've tried liver it's not for me i generally give it to a friend of mine that does really appreciate it but i don't it, yeah okay not for me i don't find it to be awesome so, i'm happy for those that like it but so that's a good flip on that question what has been the most unpleasant discovery <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so 
a couple of years ago, I was like, I have to try this. I have to try it. So I did the Rocky Mountain oysters. Oh, with you some, did. <laughs> yes, with, with, uh, with some buck testicles from the uh, bucks that I killed. Uh, can I, I ask a question? Find... <laughs> yes. The word, the word stringy comes to mind. How close am I? <laughs> um, man, it was just, it's weird. It was just not like anything. I don't, I don't think stringy. So okay, I, that's uh, good. I had a couple buddies. I had a couple buddies over, and we all had like one bite, right? Ugh. Um, so you know, did it up with some hot sauce. I didn't find them to be awesome, awesome, but they were edible. Like once okay. you, if you can get over the mental hurdle, like they will sustain life. I'm sure if I was really hungry, I'd be right. happy to have them. Right. But did needless you, to say, I haven't done it since. <laughs> did you all keep them down? Yes, we did. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, and it was all like. Uh, that's really weird. Yeah. Like, won't do that again. Yeah. Maybe not as bad as I was expecting, but it's, okay. it's definitely a mental, okay, a mental thing. Mostly. All right. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. I, I'm going to pause for a second and pour some coffee. I tried to do that a minute ago and I don't want it to disrupt the audio. So let me pour my coffee here real quick. Sounds good. Hopefully I'm not going to have a whole bunch of like sip sounds throughout the uh, recording too. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe editing out some sips. Uh, all right. So um, I know you've been kind of clever, honestly, in the ways that you've extended your ability to hunt throughout the year. So tell me some ways that you've allowed yourself to enjoy a longer hunting season. What skills have you picked up to allow yourself to do this for more of the year? Yeah. So I was talking about a minute ago, how we have a lot of regulation around hunting. And that's because we've learned as a society that greed is a terrible thing mm -hmm. and early hunting in America kind of showed us what could happen if greed isn't checked by good management and regulation. And so the departments that manage the animals, they have these different regulations in place to kind of control how much of the animal gets harvested. But that means is that there are a lot of different opportunities based on various weapons and that sort of thing. So in Kentucky, for example, our firearm season for deer is two weeks and three weekends. And it's a great time to be in the woods. If you're really crazy about hunting deer, though, and you need to put up more than four deer in your freezer every year to have meat, then two or three, two, you know, two weeks and three weekends is not nearly enough time. So in Kentucky, fortunately, we have a bow season and it's four months long. It runs from September to January. So I bought a bow a couple of years ago, but Kentucky also has 11 other days where you can use a muzzle loading rifle. That's a couple of days in October and then nine days in December. So this year I bought a muzzle loader and spent enough time on it. to I got really comfortable shooting more than a hundred yards with it. And it was actually with the muzzle loader this year that I killed four of the deer Oh wow! that I got. Huh. So I killed the other one with the bow. And so it's kind of interesting that even though most deer get harvested in that modern gun season, if I hung my hat on that, it was not going to work out for me this year. So all five deer that I took, I, I did not take a deer with a conventional rifle this year. Interesting. And Did you, you like know, that like, experience more? It's, it's a different sort of challenge. And one of the reasons to it is you're using smoked powder. So any okay. modern gun that you've ever shot, you shoot and there's no cloud of smoke. Well, the muzzle loader, there is this cloud of smoke. So you, you really need to wait like with archery equipment and with muzzle loader, you really need to wait for that moment to be perfect because you're, you're not going to get a follow-up shot. You know, you, you load it in through the end of the muzzle. So it's 
you're you got you're gonna have one opportunity to get it right so I do appreciate that aspect of it is that it keeps you on your toes and it makes you really wait for the moment to be right interesting okay but you know like anybody else involved the outdoors i am obsessed with gear so mm-hmm. i love the opportunity that a new piece of gear kind of creates for you when you when you get it absolutely as i recall your first hunting rifle was a surplus mosin nagant wasn't it 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 is yeah i still have that i i didn't like i said i didn't get anything with it this year but it's got 1943 stamped on the front of it i for some reason i really enjoy when I'm out hunting with it, the idea that some Russian guy, you know, <laughs> going, going on a hundred years ago was yeah. out in the, the woods with it, getting after some Germans, but um, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. I remember you did, you did some really awesome upgrades on it. I think I seem to recall you put a stock on it that had a thumb hole and you were able to mount a scope to it kind of on the side. And there's some neat, some neat upgrades. Yeah. Uh, in terms of being a gear nerd about my guns, I really like the thumb hole stocks for their sort of ergonomics and then just the sort of muscle memory that it creates. So I've tried to transition all of my long guns over to being a thumb hole stock for the muscle memory. And I just, I, I like them better. Nice. 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 So you live on the Kentucky river. Um, how has river life changed your outlook? I mean, obviously that's a huge part of your life now. Um, and you spend, you spend a lot of time on the water. How, how does that change your outlook and how do you leverage that to live more adventurously? Yeah, I remember we've been here three years now on the banks of the Kentucky River. We can actually look up the Dix River, which is coming off um, from upstream from us just a little bit. I remember thinking about that time when we were moving. I don't remember if I even got this anywhere, but the concept that where you live has a huge impact on your lifestyle mm-hmm. and it turns out that that is far more true hmm. than i realized hmm. and so living here we've got the the dock that we built the first summer and it just creates this whole other world of access that is now easy for us because of where we've chosen to live hmm. there's no there's no hooking up a boat to a trailer or putting a kayak on the car and driving 30 minutes it's I'm home from work. I (laughs) grab the boat. I'm in the boat. And 10 minutes later, I'm a couple miles up the river sitting in my stand. Mm. Um, So that choice and that recognition of where you live has an enormous influence on your lifestyle. It's been a really big deal for us here. Mm. So in terms of, you know, you're talking about the kinds of opportunities that that creates. I was getting into it there, describing it a little bit. But you know, hunting permissions is one of the big things that is a struggle for, for a lot of hunters. Where can I hunt? Where can I go? Um, if you happen to live in an area without a lot of public land, then you're reliant on finding somebody with private property if you don't own property. And my sort of niche that I've fallen into here without even planning it all ahead of time is that the high cliffs along the Kentucky River create these patches of bottomland that are almost inaccessible from the top. And if you can establish some good relationships with the landowners, then you can use a piece of ground that they don't ever even go to because hmm. it's, inaccess- it's inaccessible to them from the top, but it's accessible to me from the bottom. And I've been fortunate to develop some good relationships with landowners and to have key permissions on some good spots to hunt just That's a few cool. miles from my house. So 
Huh. It's a it's a really niche thing, but I'm sh- with rivers being present all across the country. I'm sure there's lots of other spots where you can take that idea and be like, you know what? If I come to it by the water, I can get somewhere that other people aren't accessing <laughs> and that the landowners may not even care about. You still have to get permission. You know that's a legal thing yeah. um, and an ethical thing to have permission to hunt where you're you're going. But there's a lot of opportunity for hunting and just other outdoor activities i mean we've got caves up and down the river there are cliffs around there's we're, we live kind of like feels like we live right on the edge of the wild even though there's houses across the river it just feels like we live right on the edge because we're on the river so that's cool that's really cool so you, you were a history and economics double major i'm sure that you know the the history of rivers kind of being super highways of the past is something that you you're familiar with um have you have you seen that? I mean, as you as you navigate these rivers, does it sort of take you back in time? Do you ever think about like that aspect of history as you're paddling up and down the, the Kentucky River? Absolutely. There's a we're in an interesting kind of time in history for a lot of American rivers because their need for navigation has largely passed, unless we're talking about the big ones the the ohio the mississippi you know some of those other tributaries but kentucky is one the kentucky river is one of those that was dammed for navigation it has these series of locks and dams on it but now they're closed and these pools now act as reservoirs so there is this deep rich history to it but those systems are have changed in their use and so it's it's a very unique time in the in the history but yet it also is reminiscent of hmm. a lot of civilization before it's actually cool one of the one of my hunting spots is right past the mouth of the dix river and if you read one of daniel boone's biographies then there's a story you know anything with daniel boone it's hard to tell mm-hmm. the truth from legend but there's the story of him being chased by native americans and him jumping off of a cliff um on the Dix River, close to the confluence of the Kentucky River, to escape, he gets down and he gets away. And so, like you know, every time I'm going to my spot, I'm driving up the river and just imagining, like somewhere around here, maybe, <laughs> like Dan Boone was getting chased. <laughs> I can see it. I can see it. You know, I can see that cliff right there. I can see the trees next to it. I can see exactly how that would have played out. Huh, so that's super cool. So there is that. You know, separating truth from legend is difficult, but yeah. Uh, you can see it. You can see what the lifestyle would have been like for, huh. for folks. So let's talk a little bit about maritime law. Um, I understand that you found at least one boat in the trees around your house. Um, yeah. Is it just one or have you found more than one now? And, I uh, found two. Okay. Yeah, I found two. <laughs> so share, share some stories of, uh, of uh, boat fruit in the trees here. So what, <laughs> yeah. what happened? Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> uh, flooding events, it's part of life along the river. You got to be mentally prepared to deal with that risk, but then also you just, uh, you never know what you're going to see floating down the river. Yep. yep. We, pull, we pull out as much trash as it's, as practical barrels and mm-hmm. other stuff like that. But the first winter we were here, I found a 12 foot aluminum John boat, like hanging wow. from a tree after a flood event Wow. and did, did a lot of research pulling the, the numbers off of it to try to track down the owner yeah it turns out that the owner was deceased so it was mm. this weird situation mm. where um 
not from an accident or anything like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know long since had passed but it was this weird situation where the boat was my property but because of the way that titling and registration and proving ownership works i ended up deciding that it was not going to be worth my time gotcha, to gotcha. to jump through the legal hoops it was going to require like Fair getting enough. a lawyer getting in front of a judge the judge yeah. declaring that it was my property too much then it was too much effort. Yeah, yeah it was too much effort and that was specifically in order to pull a title and register it so i could put a motor on it and still, i had a boat already so still a really funny story though um yeah and, i know. mean i ended up selling it to somebody who wanted to paddle it around their pond and it wasn't none of the legal stuff was going to be an issue so cool. so that happened the first time i found a rowboat that was like deeply cracked somehow connected with a guy who had had a degree in boat building and was like oh i can fix that so i get <laughs> i gave him the old rowboat and he's gonna nice. try to fix it up so he can that's awesome take his kid out in it so yeah you that's never know cool. what's going to come floating down the river that's awesome i believe you uh you likened it to the forrest gump quote about life is like a box of chocolates <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> you, never, you know. never know what you're gonna get <laughs> <laughs> so you've exactly. invested a lot of time and a lot of energy into conservation you just mentioned you know you pull trash out of the river all the time i know you've also been involved in some sort of grassroots stuff to protect some of the wild spaces in your own um community um tell us a little bit about your efforts to do that and and kind of what you've learned about um for lack of a better word you know activism yeah i mean like i was describing like you were saying we try to be good stewards of the river and our access to it so we pull a lot of trash out and things were slow during covid so we i made uh a focus of trying to pull all the tires i could find out of the the dicks river and we managed to do get about 30 or so in the in a couple mile stretch so it's looking a lot better but i think you're that many yeah Wow. Yeah, there was there's one spot particularly where it was like I'd stick my pole down with my hook on it and like just come up with tire after tire. Wow. Uh, I I tried to make a trip back in the John boat with about 20 tires and I made it back. <laughs> that was one of those like unknown outcomes for sure. It's like <laughs> did I gonna sink this thing? Did the water level go down when you got out? <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so the the funny thing about that, well, just to delve into this story, so I got got this john but i'm going down the river like you know water's almost coming over the gunnels made a mistake and then down at my feet i see this giant crawdad that has come out of one of the tires apparently <laughs> he took us home like, yeah. <laughs> that's funny but uh yeah i i'm somebody who's interested in in conservation and, and activism and we had a situation where the a, a local forest preserve jessman creek gorge uh they were having the locals were having a number of issues you know the too much trash too much traffic too much trespassing that sort of thing and unfortunately their their response instead of to make changes to the management plan was to just try to get it closed down and it's a piece of public land that a lot of people enjoy so we got involved got a petition going there was a temporary covid closure Mm. which i'm still mind blown by that that for some reason there were government officials that thought exercise outdoors would be something we should curtail but anyway <laughs> um temporary it, was a, COVID- it was a confusing time for all of us <laughs> it really was <laughs> anyway so they t- they tried to take this temporary covid closure and make it permanent 
that was what the locals were petitioning to. And I say the locals is like, you know, a few people that lived on the road there. And we found out about that, got a petition going, ended up getting over 500 signatures, went really well, and wow. we managed to keep it open. Now, wow. there, there are unfortunately some issues with our public officials following through on making changes. So I'm, yeah. I'm hopeful that we can keep that momentum to, to make the changes we need to make. Is one of those, the, the property is a great one. It's one of those places that is kind of honestly getting loved to death. I think mm. we, we can probably all think of some of those local places that are wonderful. And as a result, you know, they get perhaps too much attention mm -hmm. and this is one of them. So some, some changes need to be made to the management plan, but we managed to keep it open and, and hopefully we can continue to make those changes. It's a good reminder that the natural spaces don't exist in a vacuum and that mm -hmm. we have to fight for them and we have to be good stewards of them mm -hmm. and that we need to make sure that the, the people that live adjacent to them, that they see them as an asset and not, a liability hmm. so anyway just uh encourage following of rules even if it's like you can't take your dog which i love to take my dog um and encourage the, the local leaders to to make adjustments to the management plans as needed hmm. as traffic increases that sort of thing i read a really interesting article recently about little red hen syndrome and how everyone wants you know better better after school programs, better softball teams for their kids, you know, better museums to visit, better this, better that, but nobody's willing to do the work to make that happen. We all want to benefit from it, but nobody wants to actually pull up their, their boots and do it. And yeah. um, so I think that's a really valuable lesson for, for all of us. I mean, it doesn't sound like that was hard to do and think about the impact, the positive impact that that, that action brought to hundreds, literally hundreds of people, maybe, maybe even thousands. Um, over the course of time. So um, that's really cool. I appreciate uh, you sharing that experience. Yeah, it, and you make a good point that, not that it didn't take effort, but it really wasn't that difficult. It's mm -hmm. like, here's here's something that if people knew about, they would, they would wanna stop the closure. And so it's like, you know, create a Google form, which is just like the most simple web page in the world, you know, mm -hmm. create a form that's gonna spit you out a document with everyone's email addresses and names. And you just start sharing that on social media, texting it to friends. I mean, it was like, it was like a week where we mm -hmm. went from zero to, I forget our, our I want to say our number was closer to 700 total, but it's, wow. it's like one of these things the community really needed and it just needed someone to kind of make everyone aware of what was happening. So no, it's not, it's not super difficult. We have some real tactical advantages in terms of the technology available to us. So I want to delve into your experience uh, mapping Mammoth Cave because you've done some super, super cool stuff there. Um, some sections that you've been in, as far as I understand, have never been explored by mankind previously. Um, That's correct. You've literally been in, in on the final frontier. It, it's pretty amazing. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about how it feels to explore unexplored terrain i mean what does that feel like to be somewhere that no other human has been it's it's a pretty wild feeling i wish i could put it into words well i'm i'm not sure that that isn't one of those things that's better experienced but it's it's important to know and realize and maybe that's one of the first sort of mental hurdles just jump back when i when i first got into caving i carried this general assumption that everything had been found already and if i did a lot of caving i could go see some cool stuff 
And that was really what I believed. And after a couple of years in it, I realized that is not the case at all, mm. that we're still discovering miles and miles of cave, that there are many, many unknown caves out there um, for a variety of reasons, but, but really the, the push to explore American caves in an organized way really didn't start until like the fifties, really. Mm. So yeah, Mammoth Cave is the longest known cave in the world right now. The last count that I saw coming from the Cave Research Foundation, which is the volunteer organization I participate with, was 412. And that gets added to every month as an expedition happens out there. Wow. Uh, a lot of times those increases are made and, you know, we'll find a few thousand more feet on an expedition. Sometimes it's higher than that. Sometimes it's lower. But it, that's really the 412 is a testament of decades of folks who are going and volunteering and participating with the mapping project. But jumping back to the initial point is that we are far from done exploring and discovering unknown places in caves underground. There's a lot more out there. And the, the focus over the last, you know, number of decades, I said probably starting in the fifties or sixties has been America. And there's, there is stuff happening overseas, but there we are, we're not close to done. There is a final frontier out there underground. And so participating in that and realizing like, Oh, I am, I'm the first person to be here. So I've been in some really sandy, dusty passages that are reminiscent of the moon. You know, the photographs you see of, you know, Armstrong stepping mm -hmm. out onto the surface and leaving that boot print and you're walking along this passage and you look behind you and there's one set of tracks and That's it's wild. you hmm. is just wild and yeah. you know you in a cave passage you don't know what's around the next corner at all sure, you don't sure. know where it's headed mm -hmm. um, it might you might go around the corner and it might end but mm -hmm. the times that you're exploring and you go around a turn and there's more passage and you go around another turn and there's more passage and that just keeps happening over and over again. And then sometimes you'll, you'll open up into just some enormous cavern underground cathedral feeling kind of space. And, mm. you know, everything else that comes from cave explorations, interesting formations and, and all kinds of just cool stuff. It is a mm. final frontier. It is the best Hmm. way if, if you as a human being want to go places that no other human has been before caving is your best bet there are hmm. opportunities in space and that's awesome in the world we're living in but anyone anyone who's willing to you know get muddy and dirty and you know crawl for hundreds and thousands of yards and hmm. be a part of a team um, those opportunities do exist right mm. now for, for people that want to be a part of that. So there you go. Caves, space, and, and the ocean. Those are your three, uh, <laughs> your three best bets. Um, yeah. So walk us through the mapping process and share with us a little bit about um, the tools of the trade. What do you use when you are on those missions? Yeah, we're going to get well, a little bit technical here, totally but fine. just to give everybody an idea. Uh, when you're going on an expedition trip into an unknown part of a cave or maybe a, a known part of a cave that has not been mapped your trip is essentially to collect data mm -hmm. and so you're trying to collect 
a series of, of points, get those recorded. And so this generally is going to be done in a team of three people. Okay. You'll have your person who's, we call it setting point. They're the person in the front and they're deciding, okay, we're going to measure from this point to this point. That needs to be a straight line, line of sight in the cave. So generally you'll be going from one wall to another. Maybe you'll have a rock that kind of mounds up in the middle of the passage. It needs to be a straight line. So you're limited by a line of sight, how long you can use to make that survey station. Um, your second person is generally reading the instruments. I'll go over those in just a second. And then your third person is collecting all the data they're writing everything down and then they're actually generating um a drawing of the passage as well okay. as they're going okay. so the data that you're trying to collect is first of all just a distance measurement from the two points you've selected so you're going to measure from a to b and that's going to get written down then from a to b those two points you've selected you're going to collect an azimuth or that's your compass bearing and that's how we're actually able to come back to the surface and be able to tell you where that passage is in hmm. relationship to the surface is, is the collection of all this data. But the, so the azimuth, so, you know, straight, if you're North looking straight South and that's going to read 180, right? Okay. That's your, that's your, your azimuth, how, how your compass works. But the other piece of data you're going to collect is going to be the incline using an inclinometer. So, and that's important because, if you're measuring, if you're measuring 10 feet straight up, then that's not going to go anywhere on your map, mm. but passages do that sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so you need to have that data. You're going to collect all that data. You're going to get your drawing and then outside of the cave, generally a software is going to crunch all that data that you collected and create a, out a perfect line plot for you. Okay. That gets, you know, now I'm getting into the cartography side of things, which is the actual map making but then that gets overlaid with the drawings people that are good with photoshop and illustrator will work that data like actual real mathematical data created by the line plot together with the more artistic side of the drawing and create you a final cool product what a time to be alive <laughs> yeah that's really yeah. cool yeah seeing how the old timers kind of did it before yeah. they had computers is super interesting but um with math they're able to to produce things that are pretty accurate just in a far more painstaking side of what sort of way um so i was explaining the the measurements you need to get fortunately we we live in a time where those three measurements can be taken with one device it's called a disto x and it's kind of cool there's a lot of smart cavers out there but it's essentially it's a laser measuring tape like you could buy a lowe's or home mm -hmm. depot but a, a caver who lives in Switzerland has developed his own computer board for it that will take the the incline and the azimuth for you. So, hmm. so you put his computer board in the device, and then with one shot from the laser pointer, you can get all that data from A to B. And then you'll go to B and select C, and then you'll do B to C, C to D, so on and so forth as the passage continues to wind. Wow. So. It's kind of hard on audio. Hopefully, people can get a picture. Of I was I was able works. to follow, and I've I, I mean <laughs> I've done caving, but I haven't done mapping, so I, I was able to follow just fine. I think you did great. Um, yeah, one of the things we talk about is sort of like the lengths of your shots, and that gives a perspective for are you in big caves, a big cave passage, small cave passage. Mm -hmm. 
So if you're taking, you know, 50 foot shots, you're in pretty big cave passage. If you're getting in a hundred foot shots, you're in a huge cave passage. If you're taking three foot shots, you're in some tiny windy little yep. miserable spot in the cave. So fair enough. Um, so have you ever found anything, have you ever found any artifacts in any of these caves? Um, you know, any, any surprising finds that way? So we're going, you know, when I'm with CRF out at Mammoth, we're going, you know, places that literally no one has ever been before. Mm-hmm. Way far back in there, there are, there are good books that are really interesting. A guy named Robert Brucker has written a few about the exploration of Mammoth Cave. I think the longest cave is the title of his main book that kind of deals on the origins. And in his book, he describes some of the archaeological finds. Okay. Um, and he describes how we can tell that Native Americans hundreds or thousands of years ago actually did a surprising amount of exploration in there mm-hmm. by finding their, their burnt torches and whatnot. But mm-hmm. the kind of places that we're going now, just too are, deep. they're just way too deep. So gotcha. occasionally, occasionally we'll find animal bones that have been washed in. Gotcha. But, um, but no, we're, we're way past the human artifact side of things. Have you ever experienced anything seismic? I mean, <laughs> anything that got your attention any any shakes or moves or anything like that fortunately no we do have to deal it's an overhead environment and that is the big risk factor is that you know rocks can theoretically fall from the ceiling anytime so you have to be really really careful anytime we're in an area that's unexplored it hasn't been disturbed by people we essentially treat everything that we're touching as if it's going to fall so if you're squeezing through a little spot you're taking a really hard look at the stability of the situation before you bump into the ceiling. Um, we'll do a lot of, uh, it depends on the area. We'll, we'll do a situation where we move rocks before they fall. Um, just like if you're at a cliff that hasn't had a lot of people at it, you're, you might, and you're going to repel, you're going to move some of those unstable rocks from the edge of the cliff before you go over. So we do those sorts of things. And, we've had some some close calls where unexpectedly you know rocks fall that you're not expecting to fortunately have haven't you know haven't suffered any disasters as a result but that is the piece of the puzzle that you cannot completely eliminate the risk from when you're in an overhead environment there are always variables going on in the background (laughs) you may or may not know about Um, yes very cool okay uh what is the caving community like you know i i've been adventuring since we met primarily and uh, every outdoor community has its own, its own feel. There's overlap sometimes, but um, you know, what is, what is your average group of uh, spelunkers like in terms of personality and interest and what's the kind of feel there? Yeah. So cavers are an interesting crowd because you, you need, you need a certain amount of independence to be comfortable going underground right to to be to be okay with you know when, when we go to mammoth we have a call out time but we'll have 24 36 hour trips and so you're going in with a couple other people and no one's going to come look for you yeah you know for a day and a half you know um and and if somebody needs to come find you they're they're not going to find you for a couple days wow. um you know it's just it's so you have to be comfortable with that yeah at the same time you have to have a so you have to have an independent personality that is cooperative enough to work with other 
independent sort of people, you know? So it creates this really interesting dynamic. And in cavers, we tend to be really secretive about our data because mm-hmm. we're, we're conservationists at heart and the, the vandalism and damage that yeah. can happen in the underground is permanent. And most of us have seen it. If, if you've caved, you found a spot, you know, one we went to in college, like we knew about it because it was basically public knowledge. Everybody knew yeah. about that cave. That's yeah. why we found out about it. Yeah. And the amount of graffiti and trash and everything that happens in there is, is pretty, pretty permanent. You can clean up the trash. You can work on the spray paint, but yeah. there's no sun to biodegrade poop or whatever else people leave in the cave so cavers tend to be really secretive so it's this like tight-knit community of you know very independent people that have to work together to accomplish their goals and are secretive for good reason but but they don't tend to secrets arbitrarily it's just like you Mm. you kind of have to show up keep your mouth shut be a team player (laughs) get muddy Yep. Yeah. Earn your keep, get muddy, crawl without complaining, like just do the things that need to be done. And, you know, like with any team, if you, if you do those sorts of things, you're pretty quickly recognized as a part of the team, you know? Um, So there are some interesting sort of like teamwork things that can definitely be learned from the caving community. The caving community is pretty small. People tend to know about other people and what they're up to, Hmm. what projects are going on. And, my personal perspective, and maybe this is some of my guilt I was talking about earlier, is that there aren't enough cavers for the amount of caves out there. Mm. And, I, and I say that because neglect, neglect tends to happen when cavers aren't involved with cleanups and with landowner education. Mm. There's a number of caves that I've gone to explore. I've, I've found out about, no one's been to it for 30 years, and I've gone back to find out that the sinkhole entrance has just become a dumping ground because mm. the landowner has not been educated about their resource. So they're just mm. like hey, here's a good spot to get rid of our old refrigerators. Mm. So, um, yeah, so there's there's not enough cavers out there, but it's a, it's a cool community. It tends to be incredibly knowledgeable and educated people. I'm sure. With, with the folks out at CRF, like I've been lucky to often get to cave and do mapping with one of the park biologists, like with cartographers that are like experts in what they're doing, like expert map makers. So, if you can hang out with those people, you can always learn a lot. Hmm. Thanks for sharing. That's, that's insightful. Um, the graffiti piece is interesting because I can remember when both of us worked at Adventure Serve, learning to navigate the caves that we would take trips through by the graffiti, you know, look for the right. giant Confederate flag and turn left, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Um, yeah. And it's, it's sad. Uh, there's a lot of that in the rock climbing community too. Um, a lot of, and, yeah, you know, I think the, the big distinction there is that, there's nobody in the caving world that's publishing guidebooks, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That is the opposite of what cavers are doing. We're, we're exploring and we're trying to discover like for science and for sort of human knowledge, but we're not publishing guidebooks. And so yep. if you want to rock climb, you know, go buy your quick draws, get your rope, yep. buy a guidebook. You don't need to develop a relationship with another human being yep. other than your belayer. Yep. In caving, it is not like that at all. You, <laughs> you will need to show that you share the community's ethics, that you share the community's goals towards conservation in order to get, to get shown the cool stuff. Um, Don't know how else to say it, but no, that's uh, that's insightful. Cavers are not quick to trust, but it's for good reason. We've seen beautiful things destroyed by 
sharing too much information. They're protective. And that sounds like a good thing. Yeah. Um, are you good on time? I know we'd originally scheduled this for about an hour. I have some more questions I'd like to ask, but I want to be sensitive to your schedule. Can we keep going a little bit? Yeah, man. Okay, good cool. Go. All right. So you and I both worked at AdventureSurf. Um, you were there longer than I was. Um, Dude, what a formative experience. <laughs> I've talked to, uh, I, I've interviewed some other folks that work there. Um, I think that particular job, um, that that experience was the most formative thing I've ever been through. I think that, co that colored a lot of my life. I trace that experience back to, that was the summer I became a man. Um, I absolutely can pinpoint that to that level of independence and skill and confidence that came from that experience. Can you share your perspective on what AdventureServe does and stands for and how it impacted you over the, over the years? Yeah, uh, lots of memories from AdventureServe. I was, uh, you know, we, we led trips there together and then I went on to become program director. So all told, I think I did seven, seven summers and I think five years as a full-time staff. So lots of memories, but I think what AdventureServe does so well for the young people who are employed there is it gives them real responsibility. Mm. And I don't know if I might be going too far to say that responsibilities like kind of become a dirty word in society. Okay. It's something that like people shirk instead of seek out. But if you're a young person that wants to develop and to have opportunities, the first thing that you need to do is seek out someone who will give you responsibility. And that is something that AdventureServe had to do by nature of being a small non-for-profit organization. But it is something that it did in giving the reins to a week-long adventure experience to a couple of young college kids and being like, here you go. <laughs> and and um, we'll figure it out. You know, yeah, we were, you know, there were both plenty of times where I'm sure we felt like we were in over our heads, mm -hmm. but real responsibility creates an opportunity for real growth mm -hmm. in a way that's not artificial whatsoever. Those lessons sink in. So I think that is the beauty of Adventure Serve and a lot of other sort of camping organizations in the opportunity that provides its summer staff or its seasonal staff. And obviously it depends on how it's run, but an organization that will give you as a young person some real responsibility is really giving you one of the most awesome opportunities for development that you could possibly get. Very so cool. That's, cool. that's what I think about with adventure Serve. and you're describing that's the summer you became a man you know that's kind of yeah. what you're saying there is like yeah. I learned how to hack it in terms of mm -hmm. taking responsibility and handling responsibility so absolutely do you have a favorite memory from your time there oh so many man too <laughs> too too many too okay many okay fair enough I uh I was thinking the other day about you and Brian disassembling um Beachy, Beachy was the executive director and you disassembled his, he, did he have a Prius? It was a small car. Um, Hatchback Honda. Civic. And you guys disassembled it, brought it into the warehouse and reassembled it so that it was touching both walls, bumper to bumper um, <laughs> for, for him to find. I mean, just great, great stuff like that. Definitely <laughs> a lot of fun. Did you have a favorite vehicle? I did have a favorite vehicle. What was so, your favorite vehicle? As you, as you know, the vehicles at AdventureServe all had names. Mm -hmm. And my favorite vehicle was a, a Ford F-250 single cab called Samson. I learned to drive and stick in Samson. Yes. I think a lot of people <laughs> had their first stick shift experience in yep. Samson. 
Yep. So, uh, you know, we're running these trips, they're week long mm -hmm. and it's the middle of the summer. It's hot as all get out mm -hmm. and you're not getting enough sleep. And something that I realized was that if I didn't set up my tent at the beginning of the week, I wouldn't have to take it down at the end of the week uh. <laughs> and, uh, and deal with, you know, wet tent or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I, when I was, when Samson was my assigned vehicle, um, I'm not a tall guy. I'm, I'm five, eight and a half or something like that. Probably not quite five, nine. And so I would just take my sleeping bag and I would just throw it out on the bench seat of Samson That's with awesome. seatbelts sticking in my side and, uh, and just crash out that way. And then I would get up in the morning and I'd take my sleeping bag and I'd shove it down in, in the, uh, you know, the passenger floorboard yep. and we would drive off for our day of adventure and work and come back and just pull my sleep back <laughs> over me and and repeat so i think i probably i probably slept that was the summer before i bought my first hammock so i probably yeah. i probably slept three or four weeks in the cab of that truck during the summer that's outstanding i wish i had thought of that because i i was a hammock sleeper that summer and uh, that would have been that would have been way better you're a little um, taller than me i don't know if you, I, that's <laughs> true that's true i might have been able to do the bed um but uh the, you know the bed of the truck maybe but uh yeah that's a good point um are there any books podcasts or, or resources that you're really jiving on right now that that are maybe shaping the way you approach or look at adventure yeah so i've got a, a lot of a lot of i drive a lot for work right now so there are a number of things the the guy Roz, how i built this podcast is one i spend a lot of time on it's okay. an npr podcast the the meat eater podcast by steve ranella mm -hmm. is, is something that i pull a lot of hunting resources out of and um you're picking up other stuff stuff here and there Great. always uh always a big fan of anything history related so yep that's awesome uh, speaking of books, I know you were a Malcolm Gladwell fan. Uh, at one point in your life, you were talking about, I think it was the tipping point that described, you know, Maven, salesman and connector. Uh, and that was a mindset that, uh, that kind of helped me decode life a little bit. You had self-described as a, a Maven, which is someone that sort of specializes on, um, becoming an expert on different subjects. Do you still see yourself that way? And, um, does that still impact the way that you plan and execute adventures? I do. Yeah, I do still think of myself as a maven. When something really captures my imagination, I tend to go for it. I'm not good at doing outdoor activities in moderation. Hmm. Um, so <laughs> when, when I really geek out about something, I like to just soak up as much information as I can about it. You know, that's me talking about my, my decade of caving. That's where I'm at right now with, with hunting maybe that'll be something else in the future i don't know but right now it's yeah it's just live it breathe it sleep it just soak up everything i can learn as much as i can become a real nerd on on the subject so it leads to a lot of expensive hobbies i'll bet <laughs> <laughs> it does it I'm does st i'm know? still determined to add to that list i'm going to get you into cycling before this is all over um, you know it's, it's funny you bring that up because um <laughs> you know, so many of these activities we're talking about do relate around gear. And some mm -hmm. of that gear is essential. Like you just yep. have to have it. You're not going caving with a cigarette lighter. Okay. Yep. yep. Um, not, not for very long or not staying alive for very long. Um, so there, there are how you can manage the gear cost and being able to adventure 
is a really interesting thing. And I've discovered that I'm, I'm fortunate in that um, my tastes have so far kind of been able to match my income. So caving, nice. caving is actually super cheap to get into in the grand scheme yeah. of things. I mean, when we were in college, it feels expensive to drop like $30 on a headlamp. But in reality, like you can buy almost everything in the world you would want for caving and have nice stuff mm-hmm. and spend less than a thousand bucks. Yep. Um, which is, which is cheap. And the same thing for now it feels cheap. If you're, you know, if you're a college kid, I'm, I know it doesn't have been there. Um, but you know, same <laughs> thing for rock climbing, you know, like you can have your sport set up for rock climbing for 500 bucks. If you only get trad gear, then, you know, you can be just a little bit over a thousand and be able to go do some trad climbing, which is mm-hmm. cheap in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now we're talking about bikes and we're, we're planning a trip that I'm really looking forward to with you mm-hmm. and a couple other friends. And uh, it's going to be real easy to spend that much on a bike <laughs> without, <laughs> without any access. It is. So. Bike. And, and Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say hunting is kind of interesting because you can get off the ground pretty cheap with hunting, mm-hmm. but, uh, but you can also spend indefinitely if you yep. want to. Yep. And that's the, that's the truth. That's true for most outdoor hobbies. You can spend as much as you want to, but mm-hmm. I think caving climbing have a very low threshold for entry in terms of spending hunting can have a pretty low threshold and then you can spin through the roof and, uh, and you're going to talk about bikes. So, yeah. So interestingly enough, I've found my, my two biggest hobbies have been climbing and cycling. And um, I found that climbing has a low initial cost, but a high long-term cost because you're constantly retiring gear and replacing gear that becomes it's because it's life or death. You can't trust gear that, that you lose faith in. And so you're constantly replacing stuff and that has a very hidden cost over time. You know, ropes, are a couple hundred bucks a piece. Um, quick draws, even though they're, you know, they can be 10 to 20 bucks a piece. You know, you're replacing that every few years if you're using it heavily. Um, cycling has a really high initial cost, but after that, the cost is virtually non-existent, especially if you learn to do your own maintenance and things like that. So, I mean, that's how I've justified it. Maybe I'm just, <laughs> maybe I'm just telling myself that, um, but that's been my, my discovery. But yeah, cycling, cycling is interesting and I'm grateful certain and this is probably true in in different sports i don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole but uh certain certain brands have a different approach to that like surly surly bikes is one of my favorite companies because they are just no nonsense like it is we're going to use steel because it's durable it's heavy but you know heavier than carbon fiber or aluminum but it's going to last you 30 plus years and we're going to give you as much versatility in our design as possible. You're not going to have the bells and whistles, but you're going to have a machine that can do anything you want it to. And so there's, there's companies out there that do that and that, that try and keep that entry cost low. But, um, but I hear you, but you know, the, the sticker shock in cycling is a, a real thing for sure. <laughs> for sure. Um, do you have a gear wish list and what's currently on it? Yeah. You know, um, I've been, I'm work. I'm working on this bike purchase for uh for this trip. So that is Sorry something I've been that. thinking about. No, no, no. It's, it's all it's all good. Um, so that's that's the the kind of top thing gotcha. on my purchase list right now is, gotcha. is a good bike for this trip. I'm looking forward to um, training and and riding in the the spring leading up. But you know, in in hunting, I've I've been doing it for a few years now. So I've kind of been amassing the things that I 
things that I need. I'm not, I'm not a collector, but I like to have the right gear. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've been thinking about, and this is kind of interesting, is suppressors, actually, or yeah. what we refer to in pop culture as silencers. Mm-hmm. They don't actually silence the gun. Right. Um, but, you know, the sound that you hear in the movies is, is completely wrong. But anyway, uh, a suppressor, it does muffle the sound to some degree, some degree with your shot. And as a hunter, I rely on my ears a lot. It's actually pretty common for me to hear a deer before I see it. Mm. So my ears are really important to me. Um, so I'm not wanting this so I can be like some secret agent sniper or something like that. I just don't want my gun to be so loud. Uh, I want to protect my ears. And there's, well, there's a lot of things hunting and fishing related. We use a very different model than European countries with guns and hunting and whatnot. But it's interesting because in Europe, a lot of countries getting the suppressor for your gun is easier than getting the gun Hmm. which is the opposite of how it is in America and suppressing is thought of as like an essential piece of gear. Like if you're going to hunt without a suppressor, are you crazy? You blow your eardrums out. Hmm. So it's really weird to Europeans that it's easy to get a gun in America, but hard to get a suppressor. And like, they find that to be very strange. So I've kind of been looking into that recently Hmm. in the United States. That would mean like a whole additional round of background checks Hmm. You know, even though even though I already own the firearms, it would mean paying an extra two hundred dollars in a tax stamp to the government just so I can have the suppressor. Mm-hmm. That's not including the suppressor itself. And so, if I wanted to get two or three of those, then that's like six hundred bucks to the government just just mm-hmm. to have them. So anyway, that's something I've been doing the research on. I don't know if I'm going to go that route, but um, like I said, I, I need my ears for hunting. I use my ears for hunting. So you don't want to be hunting with earplugs either because you're mm-hmm. it's that's kind of the situation you're in. A suppressor would would be nice for those reasons. Fair enough. Anyway, one of the worst hunting experiences I ever had, I, I shot a deer from inside a uh, like a horse arena. So it was like, you know, where the, they bring the horse to exercise and it's just this yeah. tin, this tin building. And I slid the rifle through the fence and <laughs> squeezed the shot off. And I, I don't think I could hear for the rest of the day. It was awful. So totally, totally understand. Um, so in my episode with Drew Stevenson, this is a little bit of a segue, but it is something I want to talk about. I had asked um, Drew, we got into the topic of leadership. And one of the things that came up is leadership fatigue. Um, you end up in a lot of leadership roles. You have a lot of leadership uh, skill. And um, I think you kind of naturally find yourself in that role. Um, any tips or advice on how to work through leadership fatigue? Yeah, that's a tough one. Cause I've, I've been there in my leadership roles. I think when we were discussing kind of like over planning adventures and getting things to the point where they weren't fun anymore. Mm. Um, I think we're, we're scratching around the edges of that topic. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I think one key for me has actually been to learn to say no more mm. and to, to, in- to stay engaged with activities that I'm really excited about. Um, and, and, it's, it's easy, like I can have this internal debate about whether or not that's selfish, because here's a need, right? Here's a need I can see that I'm saying no to, that I'm not helping out with. Mm-hmm. But what I recognize or that organization or that group, it doesn't just need a leader. It needs a leader that's excited mm-hmm. ab- about the goal or about the mission, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times you can avoid some of those leadership burnout situations if you if you say no to things that you weren't excited about 
Mm. Avoid situations where you're you're just doing it out of like some guilt or or something like that. Um, am I making sense here? You're making perfect I, I, sense. I feel like I feel like that's the, the situations where I've been burned out have been mostly in situations where I wasn't. I you know I learned that lesson the hard way. All right. If somebody had given me that advice, I wouldn't have followed it because I, uh, you know, taking on that responsibility, feeling guilt, not being able to say no, even though it was something that I was not passionate or excited about. There's a really interesting interview. Are you familiar with Chris Burkard, the photographer? Uh, I'm not actually. Okay. You should, you should look him up. I think you'd be interested in a lot of his work. He's an outstanding adventure photographer. And there's an interview with him fairly recently that was talking about, he had talked about in his upbringing, he was raised like you and I without a lot of resources. His family just didn't have that. They weren't wealthy. And part of that culture of being raised in a family like that is you are taught to say yes to everything because you don't want to miss an opportunity, right? If you say no, you might miss an opportunity. And I definitely, I can't speak for you, but I definitely resonated with that. And he said in his adulthood, he's learned that saying no to things is actually saying yes to the things that he wants. And that's such a hard lesson to learn. (laughs) Um, But I definitely felt that when he was talking about that, like it's, it's that fear of missing the, missing the, the golden opportunity. Right. But, but really we're just overextending ourselves. And uh, so that's, yeah, I definitely resonate with, with what you said. That's very true. Um, you're a man of faith. Um, that was a big thing when we met, how does your faith impact your adventure mindset? Yeah. So I, I do believe in, in a creator and I believe that the Bible lays out a pretty clear ethic that, that we should be stewards and caretakers of creation and that we shouldn't just be here to exploit it. But as as created beings that were created to be, you know, if you want to go all the way back to the origins here, created to be in the garden, there's, there's something that happens that I cannot articulate well that, that we experience when we're in nature that, that does connect us to our creator. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I, I don't think it's something that I can articulate it well, but it's one of the things that keeps drawing me back out into the wilderness Hmm. um i don't know if it's just that it creates a an opportunity for perspective if it just that it creates time for me to slow down and think and not be distracted but we were created to be outside and we were created to participate in and caretake in creation and that is just something that is deep down inside of all of us um, that I don't know if we could really escape from if we wanted to. We just have a, a draw in us to to be to be out experiencing God and experiencing creation. That's, you know, that's my mindset. That's how I, I see it through my lens of Christianity. But um, if you've been outside, you've you've experienced it on on some level. I think everybody knows what I'm talking about, even if they would describe it differently. Mm -hmm. I think that first chapter of Romans, you know, his invisible attributes being clearly seen so that men are without excuse in, in creation. I totally, totally hear you. 
Um, Absolutely. So very cool. So what's the next adventure that you have planned? Obviously we're going on this big bike trip. Do you have anything smaller in the meantime? Yeah. So the, the season we're in right now, kind of like middle of winter, it's uh, when hunting stuff is winding down. So it's the time to do the house projects and mm. get, get, get geared up for the next thing. That's um, an adventure. <laughs> yep, it is. And, and so we're, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about the bike trip. That's kind of been the thing that's on my brain the most. Ann and I, my wife and I did just get invited to go on a boundary waters paddling trip with some of the same folks we went to El Capitan with. That's amazing. So I'm really excited about that. I've never been to the boundary waters before. So it sounds like you're, traditional kind of like canoeing and portaging experiencing the the north woods up there so i'm, I'm excited about that that'll be i know immediately i know nothing about the boundary waters so fill me in a little bit what does that mean where is that um you know kind of walk me through yeah i'm yeah. learning here too it's it's one of those spots that i feel like anytime someone's heard that i paddle they they always ask me have you been to the boundary waters and i'm like no i haven't um, so, uh, yeah, I'm really learning this too, but my understanding is that this is generally describing a large area in Northern Minnesota that is okay. kind of right on the border with Canada. The boundary waters is generally referencing the, the American side actually. And then okay. there's a whole park I forget on the Canadian side that they've okay. got a name for it, but it is a wilderness area. Um, they, there's a lot of things put in place to keep it pristine. There's a lot of areas where there's no gasoline motors allowed. So people nice. are really just canoeing and paddling. And we're talking about a series of lakes with land bridges and, and all that sort of stuff. So it's cool. the it's kind of the paddler's paradise for, for longer, longer trips is my understanding. So that's yeah, awesome. pretty excited about that. That's awesome. And I mean, Throughout the rest of the winter here, there'll be other small adventures. And then springtime is when you hunt turkeys in Kentucky. Gotcha. And so that's a really nice time to be in the woods. You start out, there's no leaves on the trees. It's about three weeks long. You start out, there's no leaves on the trees, nothing's green. And then over the next few weeks, it all changes. And by the time <laughs> you come out of turkey season, there's leaves, everything's green. It's just, it's a nice, nice that's time cool. to be doing a lot of sitting in the woods. Kind so bookend on the seasons. That's awesome. Yeah, so I was hoping to get out to Mammoth Cave. COVID is kind of slowing yeah. the expeditions down out there a little bit. They're still doing them, but they've restricted how many people can go. So I don't know okay. if I'll be able to get in on those or not. But okay. Let's talk about El Capitan a little bit, because I actually meant to circle back to that. I, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. So tell me the, the idea behind that trip and what that experience ended up being like for you. Yeah. A uh, trip of a lifetime. Absolutely. The interesting thing about caving is that caves are often vertical in addition to being horizontal. So horizontal, we're walking around vertical. We need rope and there's, it's actually fairly common that we're talking about some pretty serious instances in caves. Uh, the, the longest drop in North America inside of a cave is down in Georgia in a cave called Ellison's. And I want to say it's like 580 feet straight down in the dark in the cave. So wow. cavers have had to learn and develop good techniques for going up as well as down. Okay. And, um, and once you sort of develop those techniques, you're repelling and ascending. Cause we're not talking about climbing the rocks. We're talking about stuff that be far too difficult to actual rock climb. Mm -hmm. We're talking about repelling and ascending the rope itself. So once you sort of develop these techniques and you get good at it. You start being like, 
what else is tall that we can repel <laughs> off of? So there's a big event I've gotten to participate in at the New River Gorge mm-hmm. at Fayetteville every year called Bridge Day. Mm-hmm. So I've been able to participate in the safety team of helping repel the bridge, and that's 800 nice. um, and change from the bridge. And so, yeah, the, the caving community are folks in that group just kind of start being like, what else is big? And eventually El Capitan comes up. Nice. Uh, uh, we're not the first group to have, have done this, but, and there's a few different kind of groups that are doing these trips now, but the idea is go to El Capitan with a rope that will allow you to repel the whole thing at once. And we're not talking about pitches. We're talking about right. a single to pitch bottom. repel. Yeah. Single pitch repel. 200 or 2,650 feet is I think what they're telling us at the spot we are going to a 3000 foot long rope. And then you're going to repel it in one pitch. And then if you want to ascend, um, then you can ascend it in one pitch. So that's what we did. 10,000 (laughs) pull-ups. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the, well, the, the idea with a good ascension technique is to involve your legs as much as you possibly can. So it'll let them do a lot of the work for you. So that's what we did. Um, July of 2019 this group about 30 of us mostly cavers uh, some rope technician sort of folks in there too uh went and spent a week in the in the valley repelling and ascending there's a lot of very interesting logistics when it comes to pulling something like that off your rope weighs 180 pounds (laughs) so think about a couple things think about how you're going to get a 180 foot or sorry 180 pound rope to the top of a mountain all right Mm -hmm. so there's some interesting logistics think about how you're going to repel and get moving at the top if there's 180 pounds of rope yeah pulling underneath you so you know if if you're using an atc which we don't do uh but just to have to help your rock climbers think about it if 180 pounds is is hanging on the rope underneath your atc you're not moving Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so you have to have you have to have a variable friction device that will allow you to move at the top, but not lose control halfway down. So we use a special device or an extended repel rack that allows us to add and reduce friction. That's the the long and short of that story is a special piece of gear. Very cool. Yeah. And you had Um, talked, you had talked at one point about managing heat too, because if you go too fast, you know, there's, you could theoretically melt through the rope. Right. Yeah. If you, if you lose control on a rappel like that, you will get to a point where you're more than glazing the sheath and you'll go into, you'll get fast enough. You won't be able to recover. Wow. So a lot of logistics, a lot of like very specialized situations that even if you've been dealing with rope stuff for a long time, like I had, it's a, it's a unique situation. So, mm-hmm. um, super fun, super fun trip. I, I managed to get three rappels in and did two. Nice a sense nice and and managed to like beat the time that i had in mind for myself on one of those so it was a great 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 time uh just a little bit of story of the logistics because i'm sure people are curious now that i've delved in there what we did is we had a team um hike around the back of the mountain we'll say like six or eight mile hike i forget exactly and one of the guys took a 50 pound spool of i think five millimeter cord okay so he's carrying a backpack with you know 50 pounds all he's carrying is the cord that team got to the top and they lowered that cord to the bottom so that's a that's a 3,000 foot long piece of cord Mm -hmm. we hiked in from the bottom me and my team and we put the rope in seven different duffel bags 
to split up the weight as much as we could. And then there's like, you know, 15 feet of rope separating us all. And we sort of do this mule train to the bottom of the mountain. And then the group on top, we tied the, the cord to our main line. And then the group on top hauled that 180 pound rope. You know, it, it wasn't 180 pounds at the beginning, but by the time right. they got close to the top, they're just straight hauling. Oh my pounds. goodness to get the rope hooked up at the top i love when adventures stray into the realm of the absurd like <laughs> <laughs> well it's just like wow like why like but, but because you can like you know that's the that's the answer because you can and uh yeah. that's awesome very and cool while, while we're talking about the the absurd I'll, i have to tell yeah, one more please, story please so we get up we get up there, me, my wife, a couple other folks were up there. We're camped out. We're going to do our rappel the next day. We've hiked to the top and um, we've got a team ascending up that they're like climbing the rope. We generally would do that two at a time. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of hanging around the edge and this old dude wanders up like <laughs> raggedy backpack. He's like walking around, looking around. He's kind of freaking me out because like I've got my, my people on the rope. So I'm protective right. of them. And then this guy is kind of wandering around at the top of yeah. like, you know, a 2,600 foot sheer face. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Hey, you know, how's it going? I'm just trying to engage with him a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Oh, I think I left my bag up here. And he's like, right at the edge. I'm like, this dude is <laughs> nuts. And, uh, and then he like walks over and he's talking to me and I see that he's got like a purple crown royal bag in his hand uh, i'm like this this dude is drunk on top oh, of el capitan this oh, seems like a terrible terrible idea yep, yep. so anyway we just kind of hang out um and just kind of like engaging with him talking to him he's asking us all kinds of questions mm-hmm. like did you guys work for the park service like what are you guys <laughs> doing we're like no um you know we're just a group of friends out here he's like did you have to pay to do it and i was like no you know we didn't pay to do it. We were just splitting the cost of the rope. He's Can I have a turn? Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just like waiting for something like that. And here's this like 60 year old dude. Well, um, you know, the, the night passes and I'm camped back from the cliff edge a little bit. And one yeah. of our buddies, Brandon, it's the sun's coming up and he's waiting at the edge for two people climbing the rope. Uh-huh. And, um, and I hear on the walkie talkie, I hear Brandon go, Tammy and Mark, uh, there's a big bird up here that's getting ready to fly. And I'm like, what? What? So I get up and I go down to the cliff edge and it's just Brandon down there. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I, I'm going down the cliff edge and I hear Tammy go, we see your big bird. And I get up and Brandon <laughs> goes, hey, you know that old random dude? He was not an old random dude. He was a base jumper. Holy heck. No so, way. Yeah, man. So this this old dude was just up in there incognito. He's got all this base, which is gear. completely illegal. In completely illegal. Yeah, completely illegal. Yeah. So that's that's why he's asking like, us if we're a part of yep. the park service. Yep. He's trying to figure out what's going on. But anyway, yeah, he had all of his base jumping gear <laughs> in his old backpack, and he he's he's around the edge, not looking for whatever he said he was looking for. Right. He's trying he's like, to find his spot, spot to jump. Oh yep. my gosh. And um. And then he waited up there, he camped out up oh, there through the night in his crown royal bag. Turns out that was his camera stuff. Oh, so like Brandon, gosh. so, you it know, he goes cover. up the morning. Yeah, it was all a cover. So he goes up the morning right at sunrise. Brandon's at the edge. He's like, hey, if you want to give your people a heads up, I'm getting ready to jump off of here. And he puts on all of his stuff. He jumps off the cliff. 
and like you know van swoops in and picks him yeah. up like all it's yep. very very illegal but yeah. um apparently he, he told brandon he'd been arrested for it before so anyway he was all being yeah. super sneaky but he was yeah. just one of those like here's this crazy old guy that i'm really suspicious of turns out like he completely fooled all of us it was crazy i'm not condoning that in any way shape or form but that's an awesome story <laughs> me 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 neither yeah i'm not i'm not condoning that but it, uh, that's incredible we, we we jumped through every hoop we needed to at the park service we want to be able to keep doing that with him it was not someone affiliated no, with our trip no we got all the permits we needed to but it was That's a crazy me. thing to be yeah. a part of if you're if you want to know more about the history of base jumping in in, in its Ill- illegality in yosemite go watch the documentary valley uprising it's on netflix you can also i think you can get it on youtube too um, but it it's a good one that it's pretty amazing yeah that's that's fascinating interesting um how was the view uh nothing like it in the world man (laughs) Uh, it's It's funny you know as somebody who's been doing stuff up high for a long time yeah your your brain kind of like starts to figure it out your brain has never been three thousand feet up in your brain like somewhere for me and i'm sure if if i changed like or if i did more at variable height Mm -hmm. it would change for me but like somewhere around like four or 500 feet my brain cannot register any more like fear for the heights <laughs> it's just like am, am maxed out at whatever sort of like fear or apprehension i'm gonna have yeah so uh, like three thousand feet is just something you can't really get your brain around yeah it's just not something you've experienced you've never unless you've been on el capitan you've never been that high before yeah yeah you know so it's uh it's a very special place, man. The Yosemite yeah. is a oh. very cool place to be. I'm, I'm hoping that trip happens again in a few years. We'll see. It's, uh, it is my favorite, favorite place on earth. I absolutely love it. It's, it's unlike anywhere else. Um, and I really hope it ends up continuing to be spared from, uh, from all the wildfires that have been going on out there. Um, oh, man. It's like they've been getting worse and worse. So I hope, uh, I hope they continue to pass the park. There have been some really close calls. Um, I was happy to see that the, uh, the New River Gorge became a, uh, a national park a few weeks ago. Did you see that? I heard something about that and I was searching around for it. I hadn't, I hadn't gotten details on that yet. It is officially a national park now, which is great. Um, so it brings some new, new levels of, uh, conservation and protections to it, which is good. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to share a little bit of, oh, oh, sorry, actually one more question about your, your El Capitan trip. Um, what kind of times, just for context, what kind of times are we looking at as far as how, how long did it take you to ascend from the ground? You had mentioned kind of beating some of your expected times. What does that time frame look like? Yeah, so we're talking about unknown outcomes and what adventure feels like and some of the topics of the day. And this, when I, when I realized that this was something I could attempt, this mm-hmm. idea just like burrowed itself in my head that I wanted to do it faster than Alex Honnold and Tommy Caldwell. And, and I need <laughs> to, you're I competitive. Need to, <laughs> and, I, and I need to say very, very clearly that what they were doing is infinitely harder than what I was doing. Essentially <laughs> what I was doing was like for the climbing world is a very efficient jug haul mm-hmm. as opposed to like actually free climbing rock. So mm-hmm. very different. But this is what I had in my head was I wanted, I think, I want to say they were like one hour, 58 minutes, 57 minutes, something like that. So like, this is what I had in my head. I wanted to do it faster than that. And throughout our training, it was like, you could kind of see maybe it was possible. And then we did 
a climb where we went to a pit and put a rope on a pulley. So essentially like I was climbing, I'd get lowered back down in the pit. It was like 160 feet. So I was kind of like getting my reps in and we did that day and it took me like two and a half hours, but it included this reset time, but it was really hard to stay like what it was going to be like when we actually went, because during that reset time, I was getting breaks that I wasn't going to get. So we went to the Valley and the schedule of the week ended up meaning that I was going to need to climb with a couple other, with, with my wife and she was prepared for it. She was ready to go, but she climbs at a different pace than I do. And she also like had no interest in trying to beat time. So I kind of decided, you know what, we're, we're here as a team. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to climb. Then everything got shuffled around and we actually needed to climb as a group of three. So me and Anna and our friend Bo needed to all climb together. And that meant that like Anna had somebody to climb with her, which kind of freed me up to just like be able to go for it. Yeah. So we did. So we, it was, it was an amazing experience. We get to the bottom of the mountain about sunset there's a group of kids that are like hanging out watching me get on rope and like i'm not normally a like play music when i'm rock climbing kind of uh-huh. guy but like it's just me and el capitan so right. like i fire up a bluetooth speaker <laughs> you I need think the it pump up probably yeah i did i did it's probably <laughs> i think it was like the theme song from rocky and, <laughs> That's very and i just like I get on rope, I start my timer and I just start going, man. I just start going. And it was like feeling really good. And we got to this spot where I was up past the tree line and our support team is in the valley and they've got a telescope on us. And there's this crowd of people that I can see. Mm -hmm. And on the walkie talkie, they're like, turn your light on so we can see where you are. Cause you can't, if you're in the valley, you can barely make out someone on the cliff. Yep. So I turned my light on and then this like, chorus of cheers erupts from the valley and like, <laughs> that's awesome as far as i'm concerned like i'm a normal guy i'm yeah. climbing a rope i'm not you know i'm not huddled or yeah. anything like yeah. that but like the people in the valley don't know that so right. they just right. they think it's super cool and they're cheering me on so like that's this basically cool. continues i climb for a little while i take a break i turn my headlamp on the crowd cheers in the valley and like it just <laughs> it became this, again. <laughs> yeah it just became this super special thing that's fantastic and um right at sunset i topped out and shine my light down and this the crowd goes crazy and because nice. they've essentially watched me climb you know yeah. they've they've seen in little intervals they've seen my light move up the cliff mm-hmm. and i uh you know step back take in the sunset take a deep breath look down my timer and it said one hour and 52 minutes nice um which which meant that i had been able to complete my goal like i said it's not in the same category as what those guys have done but it was super special i'll never ever forget it goals are so important man like i yeah i think something i've come to appreciate as an adult is the importance of goals and um even if they're just for yourself like that like having something to work towards pushes you harder. Yeah. And I think that's, that's maybe one of the defining things for the adventure, right? Is what is that idea that you can't say no to yeah. that idea that you can't get out of your head where it just, it yeah. pops in there and you're like, yep, I want to do that. I'm in whatever it takes. You just yep. like, 
get what, completely wrapped up into it. And what catches I, your interest? Like it has to be something, it can't be someone else's goal. It has to be something that you were interested in doing for your own sake. Um, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think like the first time that happened, I was talking about it earlier. It's like, you know, paddle the whole Kentucky river mm-hmm. that popped into my head. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know anybody else that had done it. You know, like I said, I didn't know where, you know, I'd, I'd a map. I know where it starts and ends, but I don't know anything else about it, mm-hmm. but it pops into my head. I knew I wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, the trip to El Cap was the same way. I heard there are human beings that are rappelling up and down the whole face on a single pitch on one rope. And I'm like, I'm in, mm-hmm. where do I sign? Yep. So that, that thing in my head right now, um, you know, that, that's been a grapple of COVID is like, what can I do? What captures the imagination? So that the thing in my head right now is actually it's to paddle the whole Kentucky river again, but this time I want to do it at flood stage. Interesting. Um, okay. Like just, you know, completely blown out river. And I yeah. may have to wait years yeah. for the condition to be right. Or maybe it'll be next month, but I know that when the river gets up high enough, like I'm going to be ready. I'm going to do it. That's the idea that I can't get out of my head. And I think that's what I. Why? What appeals to you about, I mean, what appeals to you about that in particular? Yeah, I don't, it's, it's a completely different, the river, you know, the river comes alive in the wintertime and in the springtime, like it changes from this peaceful lake to this monster. Right. And I, I want to, I want to mix it up with, okay. it. you know, I want to, okay. I want to, I want to touch, I want to touch nature and, yeah, and be in, involved in it. So yeah. I think that's the thing I would say to your listeners is like, is to do that thing, that thing that you can't get out of your head, yeah. like go do it or, or get ready to do it for when the time is right. Yeah. Um, don't, don't get stuck on that thing that used to scratch the itch, like do the thing that captures your imagination and that thing that makes you feel the most alive absolutely so i think it's i think it's really important too like it's cool if that's something that no one has done before um but it's also cool if it is something that someone has done before and you do it in your own you put your own spin on it you do it in your own style um like we're going we're going on this big bike trip this trip has been done before um we're we're biking across this hopefully covid covid and and god willing we're biking across the state of missouri other people have made that trip. Like that's been done before. It's a trail. It's been ridden, but we're going to put our own spin on it and we're going to make that trip unique to us. And it will be a challenge for us. A lot of whom have never done a bike trip that long. Um, so it doesn't have to be groundbreaking. It's really cool if it is, but like it doesn't have to be something no one else has ever done before. You do it in your way and you put your mark on it. And yep. that's still significant. <clears throat> right. Yeah. I mean, if, is that what makes you feel alive? Is that, if that's what you're thinking about, like, you know, it doesn't matter a bit what other people have done before. If that's mm-hmm. what you're excited about. If you're pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and you're challenging yourself and you are growing, it's worth it. hundred percent, hundred percent. So how Absolutely. can listeners um, follow your adventures? Uh, do you have any, we talked a little bit about your social media accounts. Are you willing to share those so people can keep track of what you're up to if they're interested? Yeah, I, um, you, a New Year's resolution a couple of years ago was to get off of Facebook, and I've pretty mm-hmm. much stuck to that. Um, but I do post a lot of pictures and stories on Instagram. Okay. And that's uh, Jonathan W. Carmen underscore. Okay. So 
J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-W-C-A-R-M-A-N underscore on Instagram. Awesome. All right. And hopefully we'll have you back on the show again in the future and be able to catch up with some of your new adventures. Um, I'll probably do a, like a trip report episode after our bike trip um, just for fun. And uh, so we can look forward to that. And uh, here's to, uh, here's to many more adventures in the future. Looking forward to it, man. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I enjoyed making it. If you want to support the podcast, please head over to my new Patreon account at patreon.com slash elements of adventure. My long-term goal is to be able to support myself financially producing this podcast. Right now I'm working full-time and it would be nice to be able to have more time to devote to this. Uh, It's very difficult to to split my time uh, between pursuits, so it would be great if this could become more of a focus because this is really something that uh, I am passionate about and and enjoy and I hope that you also find value in it. Uh, Also, please tell your friends, share the word, uh, get other people interested in the podcast, uh, and hopefully they'll find something of value as well. Thanks again for being here and for getting this far, and I will look forward to, uh, to the next episode. Thanks.